Welcome to my latest True Crime Skype. In the home studio, the new setup, I've got J-Rock. This is going to be a good one because he was sent down in Arizona, my favorite state. And I watched J-Rock on 23 and 1. Oh man, it must have been a few months ago now. I can't remember when it came up on my feed. And I was buzzing because you really know how to tell a good story. Since that interview, you have set up your own YouTube channel. I've watched some of your videos on that channel today. Um, in the description box below this video, there's a link for the people watching this video. They can click down to your channel and subscribe. They can click down onto your socials and follow you on your socials. But uh, I just like to get straight into this because, um, like I said, I've got a, a fondness for Arizona. Were you born in Arizona? Because Arizona is such a transitory state. A lot of people just come through. Yes, sir. I was born here. My mother is also from here and my mother's family. So um, my mother is Mexican and, you know, I'm half white, half Mexican. Um, shout out to England. But my family is from the Mothershed family from England, a history of dogmen. My family moved here to South Carolina and then they ended up migrating from South Carolina to Arizona. And we've been here now for three or four generations. But that's my English roots right there. Shout out, mate. <laughs> you already know. What part of Arizona did you grow up in? Um, mostly Mesa, but I bounced all over between May. I was born in Phoenix, grew up in Mesa as an adolescent, and then back and forth between, you know, West Side and South Side, back and forth between Mesa, pretty much in the 480. I currently reside in the 602 in Phoenix. I've been doing my thing, <laughs> as you said. I um, <laughs> You got, obviously, plenty of memories here, but, um, I, you know, I've done – I got lots of buddies in Tucson. You know, I did a lot of traveling, you know, obviously being in the mix. And, you know, I got popped for narcotic sales. I was messing around with the coke and the ecstasy. Not in the level that you were by any means. But it's so awesome talking to you, brother, because a lot of the individuals that write me and that I'm in contact with in the penitentiary in Arizona, they know who you are. They watch your videos. And, you know, a lot of people ask me and I get messages almost every single day. A lot of the people that follow me follow you. And they always ask me, how did, how come he was clicked up with the Mexican mafia? How is that possible? And I don't know if you've ever elaborated with that or how you got clicked up with them being white, but I would love to hear that. And I'm sure your viewers would as well. Yeah. Some people get confused and think I was clicked up with the Mexican mafia in prison, which is absolutely not the case, as you know. Oh, okay. I, I was hooked up with those guys before prison. So when I had my ecstasy ring, a lot of the stuff I was doing was in Tempe, Arizona. And I was at a party in, let me try and remember the name, Rancho Marietta Complex in Tempe, Arizona. You familiar? Yes, sir. Yeah. So we had multiple apartments dealing out of all those buildings. So like there'd be a stash house, people would be dealing in other apartments, would be partying in other apartments. And um, I was supplying the... the um, the ecstasy and this guy comes in he's supplying the weed and the coke gee dog big mexican-american guy all tatted out so i just got talking to him because we were both the dealers and then a cop walks in he says nobody move i could smell weed from outside grabs i apologize okay, i apologize so, about okay, that he grabs he grabs grabs his radio this cop like he's gonna call it in G-Dog just puts his gun to the cop, says, the only one who's not leaving is you, MF. 
and we all just ran out into the night. Now, the cops came, there was like police dogs, um, helicopters, the whole complex, everything. But because we had so many apartments, we, we were able to hide him. And he wow. schooled us. He said, look, if the cops come, they don't have a warrant that fast. Don't answer the door. Don't turn the lights on. And they did. They came, but they just kept going. And he said, look, because you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. And this was back in um, this was back in the 90s. This is like the mid 90s. How, how old are you? I'm 30 years old, brother. I was born in 89. Okay, you were born in 89. So you were like on less than you're probably around 10 or less when this was happening. Yep. So um, I would go over and visit his his brother his brother's house, and they're all in the the heads of the New Mexican mafia in Arizona, and I I had no clue who they were. They got a rocket propelled grenade launched on the TV. They got a screen showing all the comings and goings on the road. Slabs of crystal meth, slabs of cocaine, all the different guns. And um, it was about two years into my relationship with G-Dog because he became one of my bouncers that I was dropping him off at his brother's house and the whole neighborhood was blacked out. And the police were out with light ones guiding the traffic and the SWAT team. We would have been in that SWAT team raid if we got there a little bit earlier. But they, right. were all bring, they, all, they all had um, handcuffs on, federal SWAT team, and then it showed all the mugshots on the news that night. I'm not going to name any names. I've changed G-Dog's name, but it, it was like, these are the heads of the New Mexican Mafia, the most powerful violent criminal organization, killing that, trying to assassinate the head of the Department of Corrections, trying to assassinate judges, assassinating witnesses, police. So that, that's my story about them. But, you know, when the SWAT team came for us, there was over a hundred of us arrested and we were a multicultural crew, let's say. But when right. you go into the jail, that all gets straightened out. It, it, it's, it's all races. Now you said that you were in Maricopa County. So I'm assuming that you got a taste of Sheriff Joe Pio's jail. Yes, sir. Unfortunately, um, multiple times, I never did time in Tent City. From what I understand is if you get sentenced with a felony, you don't go there if you ever have more than a year. Unfortunately, both times, you know, I was in county. I mean, I had done petty county time, but I would bond out and be in and out. But when I was fighting my aggravated assault case or when I was fighting my narcotics case, um, I was in Maricopa County. As you know, pink underwear. They say it's the world's worst jail. He feeds slop that is just the most disgusting food, as you know. They find coins in it, rocks, cockroaches. There's no coffee, no cigarettes. They don't have like the JPay screens. Like all the other jails are modernized and doing, you know, modern technology and advancing. And he saved money on everything by used scraps, using donated food. But one thing he did do, the one thing that I did condone that Arpaio did is he take care of the animals like crazy. All the animals in Maricopa County, you know, when it's 118 degrees, he was very serious against people that were animal abusers. And they ended up just pushing the law to now where if you abuse an animal, it's a felony. Now it's now just a slap on the wrist, which I think is good. But other than that, you are correct. He had multiple hits on his head. There was a million dollar hit from the Mexican mafia. Obviously, the Mexican mafia and the new Mexican mafia are different. But I'm glad that you cleared that up because tons of my subscribers asked constantly. And I didn't know and I didn't want to tell them otherwise. I knew for sure that if you were in the joint and you're solid and the people that I know are saying that you were solid, then you had to have ran with the woods. So, and the other thing I'd like to clear up is National Geographic Channel 
they did uh, Banged Up Abroad, it's called Locked Up Abroad in Your Country episode of my story. Now what they did was, they took me meeting the New Mexican Mafia story, they combined it with me going to LA to buy Ecstasy story, so they've got me going to LA, this guy, oh, this guy opens the door, and the New Mexican Mafia are in his kitchen. <laughs> so people are saying I'm full of shit. Because in my book, I wrote the story correctly, but on the TV, I'm saying I went to L.A. and met these guys. <clears throat> they didn't even tell me they were going to do that on National Geographic. They just did it. But I thought it was a cool production. Um, it's, on, it's on YouTube, usually. It's called Raving Arizona. So how old right. were you when you first went into MCSO? Um, 18. Two days after 18 years old. One of my buddies, you know, obviously I'm not going to say names, had contacted me. We had been friends since, you know, sixth, seventh grade. He hit me up and told me he had a couple pistols and a badass TV. We met, you know, at a gas station. I pulled up in my little car, thought I was a little hot shit. You know, paid him a little bit of money and I bought one of the TVs and a pistol. And after about two weeks or so, you know, it was a nice TV and it had, you know, the Sony logo on the front and I just popped that logo off so that it was all black. This is, you know obviously like 12 years ago or so. So the touch screens were just getting, you know, really cool. You know, they were finally getting nice, the plasmas or whatever. So I was all happy, you know, my girlfriend, and my, it was my first little apartment. You know, I was still a youngster. She was happy, you know, we were doing our little thing. We thought we came up and uh, somebody came by my house to buy a little bit of weed, one of my buddy's friends. And when he came in immediately, when he seen that TV, I just saw the look on his face. Like he knew the second he saw it, where that was from. And when he left, I called my buddy and told him, look, something was fishy. Like, I don't know what the fuck was up with him, but something was up, you know? And he told me, look, if anything happens, you know, I'll handle that. And sure as hell, that individual ended up. So the person the house that ended up getting broken into that I didn't even know anything about, their father posted on, you know, social media, if anybody finds out or, you know, gives me information, I'll give you $500. So this kid seen that post, calls this other individual's father and says, hey, I seen the merchandise. I'm pretty sure at this house, this is the address. So they come knocking at my door at like three o'clock in the morning with a warrant banging. And we literally just got done having sex. My girlfriend was in a robe. I had a little pit bull puppy. And, you know, I had no clue who it was. I'm looking out my people and all I see is a whole bunch of detectives. And, you know, they ended up coming in. They had a warrant. I cut open the back of my couch prior to them coming in and put, you know, a laptop and I had a couple bongs that were probably, you know, three, four feet. And I just put them into the back of the couch and moved the couch back up. And what's insane is that Lamb of God, that metal band, when I put the laptop in there, it had hit play or hit the space bar or something. And when they were in there searching, you could hear Lamb of God in the couch, me and my lady were sitting there zip tied. And you could hear and you could like hear the metal in the couch and they didn't say anything about it like for literally it was just playing through a metal album and they that one time did they say why the couch was playing music and they never found any of that or about a qp of weed but that was my first time getting you know a real sentence going to county i got possession of stolen property and one of my buddies casper happened to be with me when i got incarcerated we had grown up, you know, on the streets. A lot of individuals on the streets knew him. He was a lot older than me and already been to county. So when we pulled up, and this is going to sound ignorant, you know, this is obviously, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, when they pulled up, they said, hey, what's up? Are you a Peckerwood? All the Chicano homies, all the Mexicans came up. And I said, are you a Peckerwood? And I had thought from seeing, you know, 
you know, movies like, you know, with Martin Lawrence and all those old school, like prison movies or like the movies in the South, when you would see a black guy say Peckerwood, I thought they were like calling another black guy a Peckerwood. And then later on, I thought that was like a derogatory term that a black guy called another black guy. I didn't know. I was ignorant. So when he said, hey, are you a Peckerwood? The first thing that's popping in my mind is my uncle saying, if anyone disrespects you ever or calls you a bitch, you take flight. And in my mind, I thought he was calling me, you know, an N word or a different version of that. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I didn't know. And, you know, my boy was like, nah, hey, we're woods. And they were like, hey, your people are over there. And, you know, a lot of people trip out. I have a Hispanic last name. I have Chicano style ink all over my body, South Side, multiple different graffiti. And, you know, when I would pull up on a new complex, they would approach me and say, like, hey, what's up, homie? Like, hey, you know, where you, where you from, homie? You know, asking. And I say this often. If you're Mexican and you're not from a gang in Arizona and you go to the penitentiary and you run with the Chicanos, immediately you're going to be thought lesser than because all the other Chicanos are either active or from a gang. They understand the lingo. They speak, you know, with a, you know, they, they have a very distinct lingua. And, you know, when these individuals that are Hispanic, they grow up in the suburbs that aren't from a specific neighborhood or didn't grow up in a specific barrio, they get locked up. And they don't know what's what, and you know, this gang or that gang or who's who. And so you know, immediately they kind of end up becoming a target in my mind. You know, I could have ran either or. People don't comprehend that. I could have ran with the Mexicans. And if I would have chose that, if I would have stand 10 toes tall and been a man and been respectful and, you know, stood up for myself, they would have rode with me 100, just like the Woods did. You know, my father is white. I didn't speak fluent Spanish and I wasn't gangbanging. So I picked the white route. And, you know, that's who I am. That's what it is. A lot of people like to bring up the whole racial thing. And as you know, it doesn't matter if you're Asian or African-American or Hispanic. Every race is with their own and will fight for their own. That's just how it is set up in the Southwest, in California and Arizona. That's just the politics. Don't go to prison. You know, don't if you don't like it and you don't want to be segregated and you don't want to have to deal with that and have someone put a piece of steel and ruin your life and being controlled, dictating what you're going to do. Just don't go to the joint. Because look at both of us, educated, had, you know, obviously a good business sense. We could have applied that to anything. And, you know, look at what we're doing now with the right mindset, sober. We're both, you know, doing good. I'm doing way better than I had ever. You know, I just had a baby girl. You know, I've, everything has just been falling into order just by setting small little goals, being consistent. And the main thing was just cutting out all the negativity and all the old people that I was kicking with. Anyone that's carrying a gun or, selling dope and you know all the shit i had to fall back from and you know it worked for me and it could work for anyone all right i'm just going to go back a bit now um what uh, year did you go into the jail your first time um i went into the the first time i went into county jail yeah was probably like 06 or 07 and then i went to prison in 2009 and caught my number i okay. did two and a half years go ahead a lot of my viewers are out of England. So I'm just going to explain some of the terms that you're using because some people are going to be confused. All so right. you you went in, um, I imagine it was pretty much the same as, as when I went in, in the jail right away. The four major divisions are the whites, the woods, the blacks. Then you've got your Mexican-Americans, which are the Chicanos. And then you've got your Mexican nationals, which are the Pisces. And there's a minority of Native Americans called chiefs. Yes, sir. Okay. 
Now you said that you are mixed race. Now you look white. So that first time when you went in, what did they come up and say to you about your race? They came up to me and they asked me, they, I literally, the second that I got brought in, the cops literally popped the door. I was carrying my mat, a little fish, new booty, didn't know. You know, I knew what was what from what my uncles had said and from people on the streets that I was fucking around with and running around with as a youngster. But, you know, until you've been there, you never know. So when I stepped foot, obviously at that time, my score was lower. You know, I wasn't max custody inmate. So I was, you know, in a mass dorm situation. And immediately upon walking in, I was approached by five or six Mexicans and they immediately pulled up on me, you know, like, hey, what's up, homie? Hey, where you from, homie? And I was like, what's up? And they're like, hey, are you a Peckerwood, homie? What's up? Where you from, dog? And I was like, uh, and my boy was like, yeah, homie, hey, we're Woods, dog. Where's our people? And he's like, hey, your people are over there. You know, big love. And that was that. They went and did their thing. We had to go. We sat down with the individual at that time. You know, I'm going to make up a name. His name was Bone. You know, he wanted to check our paperwork and make sure that we weren't a sex offender or a rat. Immediately, he took our police report. He had someone go over it, one of his little minions. They checked our police report to make sure that we weren't talking to the police or signing testifying. You can't have any arson charges. If you have an arson charge and you endanger a child or a woman, you will get got. If you molest a child or if you beat a woman or if you got a, you know, a funny case like that, you're going to be dealt with. And if you told... Obviously, you're going to be dealt with. Those are the main things that they're checking. After they checked out those things, you know, Badger and I, shout out to OG Badger. You just did that interview. If you guys haven't watched that interview, go check it out. But um, Badger was saying, you know, things used to be a lot different. And they were already changing when I came in. You guys are way older than me. Shit was already getting really watered down. Back in the day, when a white boy pulled up, they got the benefit of the doubt. When they pulled up, no one was thinking, oh, he's a chomo or he's a weirdo. We were trying to build, everyone was trying to build each other up instead of trying to make, knock the next white man down and look, make him look weak. When What's you making have, that noise? Um, I don't know. I don't hear anything. I think someone was maybe calling in or something, but I don't see anything now. It's like a drrr, drrr noise every like five minutes. Oh, oh wow. Um, let me try to turn this off real quick and see if that has something to do with it. Okay. I apologize about that, bro. Okay. But um, after they check your stuff and make sure that you know you're solid, you know they give you a care package. They make sure that you have hygiene. Just, it just they make made sure the noise again. What... Just made that noise wow, again. Wow, man, I don't. Can I put it on? Um, I'm getting text messages, brother. How do I? Can I put it on airplane mode? Will that affect can you us? Turn off all your notifications. Oh, oh, maybe maybe try airplane mode. <laughs> Oh no! If you do, if you do that, it'll turn everything off. But let me try to figure this did out. You, did you hear it then? That noise again? Yeah, I just. Yes, sir. I just heard it. I got people, it now. People, there we people go. gonna go. People gonna go crazy if it does that every few minutes on this video. I apologize. It's off. It's off. Noise is off. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So Sorry, you were saying right. you were saying that back in the day, they got the benefit of the doubt when you came in. But then people started to get screened more. Now you said you got a mixed tattoos on your body at the yeah. age when at the age when you first went in. Did you also have like Chicano tattoos? 
Yes, sir. So what, I what, wanted to go what, back. Wait, pardon me? Yeah, go, go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Um, so what I was saying was, is, you know, back in the day, and I'm, I'm referring, you know, obviously before my time, in the 80s and the 90s, when a white boy came in, they were given the benefit of the doubt that they were solid. They were treated with respect. They would be given commissary. And, you know, it's just I, when you come in and you're new, I lace you up, and then you return the favor to the next guy. That's just how it used to be. Now people come in, and immediately someone is like, hey, that dude's, you know, sketchy. Or, you know, there's not as much camaraderie. A lot of people are, you know, things are different and it's not as tight-knit as they used to be. Back then, until there was proof or until there was black and white paperwork to prove that that individual is no good, they were treated with respect, just like an equal until then, until there was otherwise. Now, individuals will show up into the pod and people are, you know, putting them on shine, not giving them, you know, not talking, not helping them, not, you know, explaining what is what and showing them what toilets to use. Because a lot of people don't comprehend or know, but, you know, we have white toilets, there's black toilets, there's Mexicans. And if you go into their restroom or if you sit at their tables or, you know, if you cross their area, you're going to be dealt with. And if you school these individuals and give them guidance, they'll be a lot more successful in just throwing them to the wolves. It, now people try to knock each other down instead of building each other up is what I was pretty much referring to. But, yes, to answer the tattoo question – I had already pretty much had a left sleeve all pretty much from the streets. I pretty much got my whole right sleeve, my whole chest. Um, I already had, you know, multiple graffiti. I had graffiti all over me, you know, spray cans, the Virgin Mary. And a lot of people consider that Hispanic, you know. I don't, but it is what it is. The Lady Guadalupe, whatever you want to call it. But a lot of people think that that was really Chicano style or more gangster, black and gray. And even the white boys. You know, when I got specific cellies when I was locked up, they'd be like, what, are you from a Mexican hood? And a lot of people don't comprehend the culture out here. Yeah, I love Mexican women. My mom is Mexican for one. But that when you grow up in such a diverse culture and there's so many different things, I mean, for anyone that calls me racist, they've never met me. They don't know anything about me. I mean, I, I love all people. You know what I'm saying? As long as someone shows respect and they're an honorable and they're a good person, I treat everybody with respect equally unless they come at me different, and that's you that. Said, you said you were in a dorm in the beginning. Were you in Durango? Yes, sir. I was in D3 right across from the hole in Durango is where I first went. And how did you find it, living in the dorm? Did you know anybody in there, or were you, like, fucking looking around in the night? Um, see, I was blessed, and I say this all the time. I was lucky from every jail to I hit to every prison being intermingled with the people that I was with and already doing the things on the street, no matter where I touched down, I always got love. The very first pod that I touched down, shout out to my brother, Corey. He's from Hayward. He's a white boy crip out in California, as real as they come. Um, right when I pulled up, he knew who I was. He knew my cousins from Tempe and Chandler. He swooped me up. He got me deodorant. He gave me toothpaste. He gave me a couple envelopes, or excuse me, their postcards in Maricopa County. And, you know, he took care of me. We ended up getting into some bullshit, and I got moved from D3 from the dorm style to living in the warehouse in D8. Or excuse me, it was D7. And there was I went from a dorm of about 45 people living in four-man cells with no cell door to moving to a warehouse. And it's got A row from G row, three bunks high, and there's probably about 385 people in there. And I was in a riot between the Paisas and the Chicanos 
And because the whites were kind of intermixed in that when the shit popped off, it was over the hair clippers. This is years and years ago. It was super violent. The, the, the illegal Mexicans, which are the Paisas, the Mexican nationals, they wanted to use a specific set of clippers. It was the Chicanos time. They weren't having that. They weren't going to get, you know, punked and disrespected for their stuff. So they stood up for themselves. And the Paisas kind of acted like they were going to let it slide. In the middle of night, maybe about like 1.45-ish, we were chopping it up, me and two other individuals, two white people and two Mexicans. And we were all laughing, you know, sitting there on the edge of the bed, you know, trying to be quiet. And out of nowhere, they rushed us probably about, you know, 18 to like 25 people. Out of all of them, I would say only about eight of nine were really aggressive and really trying to get at us. The rest were just there because they kind of had to and were just kind of pushing around. But thank God we had our backs to the wall. But they were swinging those clippers at us, man, like straight maces. Multiple of my buddies got split wide open. I got my lip busted wide open and got like eight and a half stitches. Eight and a half. I think I got eight stitches in my lip. I got a massive knot to this day. It's like a marble in my mouth. But we were literally back to back. And those individuals at that time, I was eating with Chicanos. I hadn't been to prison. You know, we would cook together every day. All the Chicano homies and the whites, we would cook meals and we would make spreads every day together with our commissary. And, um, you know, so when we fought like that and they came in, you know, 20, 30 deep throwing flashbangs, shooting the shotgun rounds off the SRT security response team is what SRT, we call them the Ninja Turtles, as you know. But they came in guns blazing with those massive foggers and laid us down and they zip tied everybody. And it was November. It was freezing for Arizona. 40 degrees is crazy cold with a wind chill. And they had us out there covered in mace in our pink underwear for about four and a half hours laying on the concrete zip tied. My hands were so numb and blue. I literally thought that I was never going to be able to use them again. But those bonds that I made with those individuals, like people think that going to jail isn't a place to make friends. But after you fight with someone and you're pushed into a corner and you build camaraderie with somebody like that and you can trust your life and you feel like, you know, that you can shower safely if you know that your homeboys out there and you guys have that respect. You know, that's a it's pretty much like the military. It's the only thing that is even remotely close because we are at war incarcerated. It is not a joke. And I write those individuals to this day. I do prison letters. They write me. They watch, you know, from um, prison, multiple races, multiple convicts watch. And they support, you know. And it's just been a blessing, this whole thing. I really appreciate you having me on here, Sean, for real. You're doing a good thing. I really like what you're doing. I like what you're doing, too. Let's just go back a bit again. Now, people don't understand how serious the gang rules are. And you said you had your hustle on in the streets. You knew some people in the jail. Were you aware of all of the gang rules? For example, could you explain to people? I'm going to ask you some things that I already know the answers to, but I just want you to explain to people who don't understand these things. Like, how serious is it if someone calls you a punk or a bitch when you're inside? It's, it's life or death. And I couldn't be more serious if... If at any time an officer, it could be a warden or any individual, if they disrespect you and insult your manhood and you don't step up for yourself and fight, I can promise you that that one individual that you probably, you could have won that fight or you could have taken that L. But if you step up as a man and you defend yourself and fight, you would get respect and you would probably be okay. You're going to take your knots, but turn that loss into a lesson and grow, you know, 
get your cardio up, do what you got to do physically, whatever. But the thing is, if someone disrespects you and crosses that line and you don't reciprocate and fire and take flight immediately, because that is 100% a personal disrespect issue. If you don't, your race is going to retaliate against you and it's going to be 10 times worse. There have been every single day since we've been doing this video, there's probably been somebody smashed for not having heart or for not stepping up for themselves. And it, it, it's a revolving door. These individuals think that, you know, I, I don't know what they think, brother. My father was a Marine. I went in with the mentality. I'm, I'm coming in a man. I'm going to come out a man. I'm going to provide, you know, I'm going to hug my mom again. I'm not going to get washed up in this shit. You know, I did what I had to do. People don't comprehend, you know, I say it until I'm blue in the face, but just because white boys run with other white boys and we're forced to sell with other white boys doesn't mean that you hate another race. Just because you study Norse mythology and you believe in, you know, going to Valhalla and you're into nature and you wear a hammer does not mean that you hate another race. It's heritage, not hate. There's nothing in any Odinism or Asatru or any of the Norse mythology that is anything about race. It's all about nature, the tree of life, Odin, sacrificing for your brother, being a good individual and being a stand-up man, providing for your family, treating women and children with respect. It's all good morals. People don't realize, but Christianity, I did a video recently on you know the pagan holiday and Christmas and all that. People don't realize that almost all of our traditions are from pagan holidays. And, you know, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I don't know if that's 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 the way I can put it into words. I know that there's a higher power. I, you know, I pray at times. I've prayed incarcerated on the streets. And, you know, there were times where I feel if I weren't looking for that outside guidance that I wouldn't have made it through. I'm sure that, you know, individuals and people that just solid people that aren't weirdos they lose their mind in there i mean the walls creep in on them they start counting cracks in the ceiling and next thing you know they're mutilating their testicles or cutting their wrist or drawing in feces on the wall and i've seen it you know more than 20 times and to, it's just not normal or right it's inhumane really yeah we're going to get to those stories in more detail but just going back to the gang rules you touched on heart you've mentioned what a charge check is they want to see if you know if you're a chomo or got anything like that. Can you explain to people what a heart check is? A heart check, absolutely. So you're going to get a heart check with pretty much every race, regardless on what organization you run with. They're going to see if you're about that. They're going to whether you know there's no two heart checks could be the same. You know, some some individual might try to take your food and just test what you're going to do. Another person might come at you with something homosexual, a slur, or grab your ass and just see what you're going to do. And if you don't react the way that they're expecting you to react, they're going to prey upon those individuals. And um, I totally spaced the question, brother. Excuse me. What was the okay. main question? Okay. we are, Right now we are on what a heart check is. Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah. So, no, did, so the, heart check, the heart check is pretty much to test someone and to see where they stand, to see if they're going to step up for themselves. You know how I got heart checked. I I pulled up to prison. It wasn't in county jail. I had already kind of proven myself a couple of times getting it in. Obviously, county jail, the politics aren't as harsh as the penitentiary. When I came to prison, immediately I had seen someone that I knew from county jail, a big, tall, white boy from New York. I swooped him up. He told me that he was in a workout car. 
for anybody that doesn't know, a car is a, you know, a group of individuals. Um, he told me, hey, I'm in this, excuse me, I'm in this workout car. When the doors pop, come to chow with us. So when the doors popped open, I went out. I ended up meeting up with their little group of four or five, and we ended up going to the chow all together. And I sat with them at the soldier table. I didn't even know what that was at that time. I just sat with them because I was with them. But the whole point of the story is, is that after we grabbed a couple of trays and we sat down, after I literally probably ate, you know, two and a half trays, gorging myself from being in county, starving. So my stomach was really full. One of the big guys reaches over to me and tells me, hey, old, uh, old boy over here that you cut in line wants to get it up with you. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, fucking homeboy said that you disrespected him and that you cut him. When you guys get to the pod, he wants to fucking run a fade. He wants to step into the banyo. And I'm like, what? And like, I'm not scared, but I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm like, I didn't disrespect nobody. Like, I was with you guys. Like, And he's like, nah, I don't know what the issue is, bro. He's like, we're not going to let them jump you. But, you know, he wants to get it up, dog. So you're going to have to get it up. So-and-so is going to give you some shoes. And you guys are going to get it in building four when you get back. So I stopped eating and like I was, I was on go time. You know, I wanted to, honestly, I wanted to go try to puke this food up real quick so that I could, you know, defend myself. So I'm thinking, you know, what I'm playing out these things in my mind or like what is going to go on? You know, I don't know. I've heard all these war stories and how prison's going to be, especially for the whites. And they're going to make me a Viking. And, you know, so mentally, I don't know what's going on. You know, my adrenaline's already going, you know, 15 minutes prior to the altercation even getting started. So we walk all the way across the yard, probably, you know, 600 yards. And we get into the building. They give me some crusty pair of like 14 size 13 and a half shoes, new balances that are flopping, talking themselves. I wear like an 11 and a half. I lace these things up as tight as I can and the laces break. So I'm trying to make do with what I got. And they give me some shorts at that time. I was still just wearing pants and the, you know, the brand new shirt. Someone gave me some ripped up gym shorts and you know, they were like, are you ready? Like, you know, if, if he gets you, bro, like, I got you, you know, the big dude that was pretty much putting me on the whole time kept telling me, if, you know, if they catch you, youngster, I'm going to, I got you, like, don't trip, you know, and he was, like, trying to pump me up, and, you know, I'm, like, I'm ready for, like, what's going on, you know, I didn't know how this was going to go, but I knew I was going full force, and, you know, I didn't know, you know, I had no clue what was about to happen, and sure as hell, the doors pop open, three or four Mexican dudes start walking, and they're jamming fast, and, like, you can tell, you know, it was go time. And the dude tapped me on the shoulder, like, let's go. And the four or five of the white boys kind of walked with me. And, like, they walked into the bathroom first. One Mexican dude stepped in there, face all tatted up, big yoked up Mexican, probably been doing time for God knows how long. And he stepped up in there, bro. And the first thing that was going through my mind is I'm blasting this big boy in the throat, you know, and I'm taking him to the ground. I'm not going to get dropped or, you know, KO'd right now in front of everybody in the pod. There's probably 250 people that can see into this pod where we're about ready to fight in that bathroom. For anybody that doesn't know, the baño is what they call the bathroom. Pretty much every race says that. It's bathroom in Spanish, the baño. That's where we fight, the octagon. So I step in there. You know, I come around the corner. I step in there, and I, I'm about ready to get it. And, like, as soon as I get into my stance, he's probably about 10 feet in the back by the handicap stall. And he's squared up, big boy, all tatted up with his shirt off. Traps coming from his ears to his shoulders, just yoked, penitentiary, stocky. And as soon as I came in, and I was like, what's up? He said, what's up, motherfucker? And, they all came around the corner like, ah, and like, got you. Like, you know, they were all clowning me, all the white boys and the Mexicans. And like, I still didn't know. I thought they were jumping me at first. Like when everyone came rushing in, I thought they were getting me still. Like I was still backed up. You know, I'm in the urinals thinking they're going to poke me or something. I didn't know what was going on. But 
you know, they're shaking my hand like, hell yeah, youngster. All right now, youngster. Like they're all, you know, rubbing my head and shit. And then that big Mexican dude, you know, came up like, all right now. Hey, what's up, dog? And he, you know, shook my hand and got all rough with me like, all right now. He's like, hey, are you hungry? I told him, yeah, you know, I, I just got here. You know, I'm hungry, fuck. And, you know, they were all laughing at me. And, you know, they asked me, do you smoke spice? You know, you want to smoke a joint? And everyone pretty much was cool. You know, at, you know, my paperwork wasn't even there yet. When you first get to the penitentiary, all your stuff is in property. You show up with, you know, your shoes. You're in flip-flops with the clothes they give you in your mat. Normally, it takes about a week to nine days for your property to come and for you to have your police report. And that's what I was saying. I was greeted with kindness. I got given a pouch of tobacco. I got given everything I needed. I got workout shoes. A lot of people you know, wouldn't know this, but white boys mandatory have to be suited and booted at all times, even on low custody yards. You can't walk across the yard to the shower in your shower shoes, which are your sandals. You have to have your shoes on. You have to be ready for anything to happen. People can't come. People always say, how come people get so big in there? Because they're in a warlike state and they're leaking testosterone. That's why they're able to put on size. And that's the scientific facts. Besides all the carbs that, you know, they're feeding and, you know, sitting there working out doing nothing. When you're in a heightened sense like that, that's why cavemen and, you know, barbarians were a lot more savage because they were, you know, expressing and using these endorphins in their mind. Humans these days, as you know, people sitting there are so comfy with their Starbucks and, you know, their Tesla. They don't even, you know, they don't even know what it's like to anything, brother, sweat or hunt for their food or to struggle or have to battle to survive. Like, you don't know what you're capable of until you're pushed into a corner. And I've seen some of these heart checks go bad. Sometimes someone will try to heart check someone and they'll, they'll kill the individual. Like, the third day in prison... I'll, I'll let you go ahead real quick. Yeah, please describe that. I'd like oh, to hear that story. My third day, um, my third day, you know, I said this briefly, I think, on um, on lockdown 23 and 1, but I was on a top bunk. I was brand new, so I could see pretty high in the dorm, and it was probably only like my third day in. I only knew maybe, you know, 10, 15 names. I'm still getting used to how everything works. And when I first got there, the Paisas, which are the Mexican-Americans again, they smash somebody over some issue. I don't know what it was. They go to the bathroom. You hear, boom, you know, boom. Someone got beat up. The dude came out, and he was all lumped up. Well, when someone gets beat up that drastically, they can't just go to the chow hall, all laceration and their face swollen. So whoever beat them up, normally if they stay, they're still solid. Their people will feed them for however long so they don't have to go expose themselves and get everybody caught up and get a ticket. So they were feeding him. He was staying back, not going to chow, not going to school, trying to hide his face when they would do count time. Well, on that third, maybe like two days after he had gotten beat up, the shot caller that had called that shot and got him beat up was sleeping. And, you know, cubicles in a dorm style living, it's cubes, it's not cells. So you're exposed to everything. And the individual that we're speaking about, the shot caller for that specific race, was in between multiple other races. So when this individual creeped up on him, he had a belt wrapped around his head. And these belts are, you know, strong little straps. Imagine like a really strong dog collar and they loop a padlock through it. And I guess he had multiple padlocks on it and he had it wrapped around his hand and just whoop, whoop, mounted that guy. And I was on the complete opposite side of the dorm, the complete opposite, literally probably 65 yards plus. And the sound of that. The sound of that lock hitting that guy's head is just indescribable. 
I couldn't re-describe it if I wanted to, but I mean, people found, you know, like how on a padlock, how they have the dial, like how you would twist at school, for, you know, that little dial was found on the opposite side. When he was hitting that dude, those padlocks were, one of them broke apart and they found a piece on the opposite side laying on a white dude's foot of his bed. Like, and that was one of the most vicious things that I had ever watched, you know, in person. That guy, I don't know if he lived, everybody was kind of talking about it, you know, at Chow Hall and in school for about four or five days. And then it just gets swept under the rug and nobody even remembers that guy, you know? It just, it happens so often in there that you get so desensitized to it. I just say to my viewers constantly, like, no one is about it. We all feel that pain at night. We all want to be touched by a woman. We all want to do what we want to do. No one wants to be told what to do constantly and where they can fart and what toilet they have to use and how they have to shave. It's horrible. And I just, the, the fact now that we have these opportunity, brother, to show these youngsters that look, we did it and it's not fun. It's not about that. You're not going to go get a whole bunch of tattoos and get some chicks. I mean, you can get tattoos on the street. It's not worth it. Yeah. So I'm trying to build up here a picture of Arizona prison gang culture with you. You've done a brilliant job so far of describing yourself going in, how they check your charges. You've done a brilliant stories there about the heart checks. What other gang rules did you have to learn when you first went in? Um, first and foremost, no rubbernecking. If, if 10 black guys jump on a guy and they're beating him, you continue playing your card game and you act like a convict and you act like you've seen it before. You don't freak out and act like some new booty and start staring. If everybody starts staring, the cops are going to see and you're pretty much dry snitching. You can't rubberneck. You learn real quick to keep your mouth shut and your keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Listen, follow suit, you know. Don't think that, you know, you're going to walk in there and punch a big guy in the face and earn respect. That's not how you earn respect. You only have your word and your balls in there. You don't break either of them. Stand up for what you believe in. The rules for pretty much gang-wise, I mean, for one, first and foremost would be don't talk. You know, that's main. No matter what that cop asks you, if a cop were to come in the pod and say, hey, where's where's Sean at? And, oh, yeah, he he's uh, in shower three. You're getting beat up for that. You, you had no reason to do that. They didn't ask your name. You know, people come in and they're not really – knowing these things. Another main thing that is simple that a lot of individuals on the streets would never even think of is hygiene. Individuals going number two and not washing their hands will get severely punished for coming out and sitting there with feces on their hands. Obviously, you know, they might not have poop on their hand, but if you use the restroom and do not wash your hands, you are going to get smashed. If you get a warning, you're lucky. Some individuals are so scared coming into county that they won't go to the bathroom. They're so scared to go to the bathroom in front of everybody. I've heard of individuals holding their shit for 18 days. But what a lot of people do that are new and are scared, they'll try to shit in the shower because they can be behind that curtain and it's the only little brief amount of privacy they have. And then they try to stomp it through the drain. I've seen multiple people literally almost killed over pooping in the storm drain. Other men have to use that facility if you're doing things like that that are hindering other people's time, you're going to get dealt with. You need to do your own time, have your own program. And the biggest thing, if you are going to be incarcerated or you caught a case and you're 
be consistent. And that's with everything, with learning new skills, with training dogs, with learning to fight, with striking, anything, learning a language. Consistency is key. Keep pushing. Everything is hard. People always think that everyone just became a master overnight. All these individuals that just dominate their craft, they've been mastering it and trying it and failing. One of my favorite quotes is, you miss every shot you don't take. Wayne Gretzky said that quote, and I love that. I live by that. You know, I'm not scared to fail. That's why I'm not scared to be on this whole thing. This whole YouTube thing turned into something totally different than I thought. Initially, it was just reaching out, letting death know and all his subscribers, hey, not every white boy is scared under the sheet, wanting to PC up and play Xbox. There's the other side of the coin, and I just wanted to share that. And when these kids started reaching out to me, I started having multiple individuals saying, hey, my dad went to rehab. He's been watching your show. We love you. We support you. You know, here's $3. We, you know, we're broke, but we support you. Or I was supposed to go train an individual. He has an amazing little bully named Marley. I was supposed to go train. And when I called on Friday morning to confirm we were supposed to go meet, he told me, look, I've been watching your show now for three and a half weeks. I wish I would have met you a couple years ago. He's like, I'm addicted to heroin. And I just want to let you know I'm going to detox. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be in California for like two months. When I get back, I want to shake your hand and I still want to train. I just want to say thank you. And, you know, hearing those things makes you feel good. And I don't know about you, but I like feeling good. And if, you know, I enjoy doing it and people are getting a positive response from it, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I try to just, you know, be me. If I'm just me and I'm authentic, I can't take an L, I feel, and I just, you know, I'm just being myself, and that's it, just being myself. All right. On the gang stuff, then, a big, <laughs> thing, about, a big thing about prison is the drugs. And you talked about people jumping in on fights. That's a no-no, because if people jump in and there's a riot, the whole building gets locked down. The drug flow stops or slows down. And the absolute priority from what I saw was to keep that drug f flow coming in. Now, so for example, if a black guy and a white guy's got a beef, then the heads of the races in that building will just say, all right, you guys go in that cell under the stairs or the octagon, the banyo, whatever, and, and you know squash the beef. And then you'll see guys, they'll fight. And at the end, they're having a smoke or they're having a hug. If they're not complete psychos, they're not going to go off and get shanks. Generally, that is like routine from what I saw. So from your experience then, can you talk about gangs and drugs and prison and how to avoid the minefield? Because a lot of violence happens around drugs and drug debts in, in these places. 100%. That was a great question, Sean. So you know, obviously, with power, money, all these things all play into a part. These organizations aren't uneducated dumbasses sitting in there with no education. These are lucrative, serious organizations. They are controlled. They are literally making calculated moves, making serious amounts of money from behind bars. When these things get affected, there are serious ramifications. That's why the politics are how they are. For instance, if another race, and if it were any two races, they're not just going to have a dispute. So say a black guy called a white guy a bitch, yeah, they're fighting on site. If anybody, if anybody else were to jump in, you know, we're going to kick it off. Guaranteed, no matter what. 
if nine times out of ten, it's going to kick off if that were to happen in that manner. Normally, just as you said, whoever has, you know, got that head for that race, they're going to get together, say, look, so-and-so and Sean are bumping heads. He owes him $4 on the poker table. We don't want to have this riot kickoff and have all of our soldiers get got and lose all this money and everybody's phones getting taken. Let these two step into the cell and handle it. So as you said, they'll step into the bonio, handle it, boom, debt, you know, it's over. But in an or you know, in an instance where individuals start fighting, it's gonna crack off. And that's why things are like that. And exactly like you said, you have to be thinking about everybody else always. A lot of these individuals grew up in foster care or with no father or on the streets doing what they wanted when they wanted and they didn't give a fuck, you know, about anybody. But now you're with everybody that's an alpha male. Every move you make affects everybody. If you want to be a jackass and spark up a joint right before count and that cop walks in and they want to be a dickhead, they're going to go search homeboy's cell across the pod and go get him and get him caught up for his shank and his dope and their phone caught, which was $1,100. And now you and your cellie are going to get your head cut off because you just got a fucking different organization, somebody that's a big dog for another shit caught up. And now, you know, blood is going to be paid, you know, and it, it affects everything, everything, money, it, you know, same thing on the streets. It's worse in prison because, you know, two shots of coffee, two scoops of coffee, you don't pay that back. You break your word. It's over principle. It's not really that two shots of coffee. It's the fact that all 900 of these individuals that we live with and that see every single thing we do know that you just burned me and that you don't give a fuck about what I got to say or you don't give a fuck about my pocket. Because what if we go on lockdown tomorrow or a riot happens and I have no food now because you wanted to be an ass clown and break your word and I trusted you. So, I mean, all these things affect other individuals or being a cell warrior. That's why, you know, all the whole YouTube gangsters and the cyber crips in prison, you can't yell. It doesn't matter if that individual is a PC case or if that guy beat up your sister on the street, if you're behind a closed door or he's on the opposite side of a gate and you can't get at him physically, it's weak of you to jump out there and be like, yeah, screw you. Yeah, what's up? What are you us? You don't want to let the enemy know that you're coming for them. They're going to get prepared. You get at them when you can. You don't make stupid beefs like that. You getting out on the run and yelling, hey, fuck you, old boy, blah, blah, blah. Somebody else could think that you're disrespecting them, and now you just brought a whole other race into this shit, and all 500 of their people, and they're going to stand, like, every, it's a domino effect. It couldn't, that was a great question, brother. Straight up, great question. So, you're going in, in the beginning, you don't understand all of the gang rules. You, you're probably more streetwise than a lot of people. Did people test you? Did you get in fights right away? So I wasn't getting tested per se by, you know, it wasn't the, the initial first couple of fights weren't, you know, from people trying to try me or, you know, to take my cookie or something. It was more of, I was on a lower custody yard. Once I kind of got my bearings and I knew a couple of people that I knew personally from the streets had a little bit of pool. I started kind of, you know, wandering out and being a little running amok. I say that term often and I have a lot of comments and people say, what is that? When I say running amok, I mean that I was over here making money doing this. I had my hands in that. I was going to try to, you know, get this dope and cut it in half and go make double over here. And I was calling this girl on this cell phone trying to get her to send money to this green dot. 
so that I could get this and buy these shoes so that I could get a G-Shock and sell it to somebody on the other side for more. Like I was constantly trying to hustle because I knew from the rip that my mother and my grandma aren't going to be supporting, you know, my commissary. I wanted hygiene. I wanted nice things. You know, I wanted my shirts creased up and I wanted my shit sewn and you got to pay for that. I wanted, you know, a CD case. I wanted my TV right. You know, I wanted my tumbler all tatted. And, you know, I got those things. Was it right? No. Did I learn from it? 100%. But, I mean, my first term to my second term was night and day. From being on a two-yard and then going to a three-yard, it was a slap on the wrist to coming back and being on a four-yard where everybody's strapped up with a banger all day. I mean, I knew a dude that had a colostomy bag that got shot by a shotgun twice in his guts. And that dude would hide pieces to his little lat band and shit and like tie it, you know, crazy. People tucking pieces under really fat, you know, guys hiding it under their, you know, man boob. Dudes hooping, you know, big pieces of metal, you know, going out to a riot, hooping that. I have this piece right here from a video that I just did the other day, but this is something common you find on pretty much every prison yard. When prisons were being built, people don't realize that, you know, these things were just getting fallen in the dirt and getting covered. So, you know, you kick around enough dirt on a prison yard, you're finding pieces of rebar, four and a half inch nails. I mean, this looks small, but I assure you that this could end a life very quickly, as you know. And it's it's not a game. I mean, something as simple as a single blade razor, you break that open and manipulate that into, you know, um, any type of handle, a toothbrush, anything. And that, those fillets, you know, those slashes are so vicious. I mean, I've seen dudes opened up like you wouldn't believe. I'm sure you have as well. I wanted to ask you real quick, excuse me, where did you, where did you go when you touched down? After you went to Alhambra, what yards were you on? I'm super max right away because the prosecutor, she'd done a number of things on me. And a final farewell was she accidentally put my sentence down as 34 years. My sentence was nine and a half years. So in the, in the county jail, the prosecutor, my bail was $750,000. She doubled it to 1.5 million, so I would go to max. Because as soon as your bail goes over a million, you go to max. My girlfriend, she was visiting me three times a week. She was my lifeline. Prosecutor charged her with one prescription pill found on the day of the SWAT team raid, which is a classic felony. You still learn? Yeah, classic felony. Um, co-defendants can't visit co-defendants. So they, they really messed with me, man, hardcore. I was, um, I was in the county jail until my third year. I was fighting the case. Um, Wildman, he, um, I don't remember where Wildman went. After about a year, he, he did a plea bargain. And I think he went to Buckeye, and they came up to him. The woods, some, somebody came up to him asking about his charges. And, uh, Noise, noise again. I don't have any notifications. I don't see anything this time. There's like a crazy noise. I don't know. Stop. Okay. Yeah, Wildman got to to Buckeye and um, they came and asked him his charges. And he says, I'm just trying to get to sleep. I've had a bad day. And he said, I don't think you understand. You need to tell us your charges. And he just knocked the guy out. <laughs> Yikes. 
and then and then and then um they said to him right you shouldn't have done that we're going to come back so they came back they, they did some research and um they ended up offering Wildman the guy's job basically oh wow you've seen some of his stuff on my channel haven't you yeah 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 he'd be a good one for you to talk to That's as well have stayed in i like that yeah, but, but just going back to you then, um, we were talking about the gangs, the drug debts, and the violence. What is the craziest violence you've seen in prison or jail? Um, I've seen a lot, brother. I've seen a 19-year-old kid hang himself, and you know he was in the pod perfectly fine, talking, everything was cool. We were playing chess. It becomes 10 o'clock. I'm sitting in the front of the pod reading so that I could see with the light in SMU2. I didn't have a um, lamp at that time. And I'm sitting in the front of the pod, and the cop comes in to do the walk like normal, you know, at night. They come in, they leave. And this kid was dead next to me, man. He hung himself in a vent. They brought him out, started doing CPR. For one, he was stone cold dead when they cut him down already. You could hear the cops in there dry heaving, like, Ugh! Like, he was stone cold dead. They finally bring his body out of the cell because that was a crime scene. They're trying to give him CPR, and they have, like, this little plastic thing over his face. He's completely blue. Mind you, he's Hispanic, a dark-skinned Mexican at that. And his lips and his face were purple. They tried giving him CPR. He was stone cold dead. The fire department got there probably, like, 15 to 20 minutes after that. They came in. Tried hooking him up to a machine. They did CPR. Tried giving him, like, that little oxygen pump bag to his face. And then they called his time of death, like, probably God knows how long after this dude had been dead. And then they just left his body right there for probably eight and a half hours and had some brand new, new booty young cop, probably 21 years old, didn't have a facial hair on his face, sitting there on the stairs. They set up a little camera on a tripod on the body, and the the guard was just sitting there on the stairs, just staring. And all night long, all the inmates were like, boo, or he's going to get you. And he was terrified. And, you know, all these people are completely desensitized to this guy we were just talking with and we're just having conversations with. And he was just talking about his kid and his lady. Now he's laying there dead and everyone's messing with that guy. Like, he's not going to bite you. Touch him. Poke him. Whisper in his ear. You know, it's just you get so desensitized to that. And people are going to ask why or what, what that kid lit an apartment building on fire. It was a huge case. It was all over the news. When he showed up immediately, people were getting at him in the vent, like, Hey, shoot your paperwork. And he was really nervous. They kept saying, you know, where's your paperwork? And you get a two week time. That's enough time for them to give you an envelope and a stamp for you to write your public pretender or your lawyer and get your stuff back. And you know, Legal mail comes a little bit quicker than the other mail. They don't get to open it and search it. They open it and do it in front of you. But that was pretty savage. I mean, there are, you know, I'm going to switch the name, but there was an individual playing basketball with somebody on the yard, and we were at the poker tables, you know, playing, doing our thing, and we knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming except the individual. And, like, you know, you can feel the tension. Everybody does the same thing every single day. When you come out of that cell in the morning and everybody's routine slightly different and you see everybody wearing their older shoes and their older clothes, not wearing their nice gear, because normally we come out going to the chow hall stunting. We got our nice watch. We got our nice stuff, you know, 
you come out looking proper, you represent yourself, and you're representing your people as a whole. You don't want to be walking around unshaven and stinky breath smelling like B.O., or you'll get dealt with. But, um, man, they were playing basketball, shooting hoops, you know, shooting hook shots. And next thing you know, this guy's got a piece of rebar stabbing this dude from behind in his chest, like right here in his sternum and his collarbones and the sounds of that dude's sternum. So anybody knows, you know, rebar is, you know, as thick as your finger. Imagine a brand new crayon when you're a kid, how crayons are at a point, but at the tip, it's very flat. It's flat. That's how the maintenance crews. So in prison, they have specific individuals that work on the toilet and they well, they know they do different tasks around the prison and they have access to tons and tons of different tools this has been happening since the beginning of time every single prison knows this and they try to keep track but there's just too much stuff and these individuals can get time on a grinder and put an edge on anything and I'll, i mean the sound of that dude getting stabbed and then to you know make the story more savage i have so many stories real quick to pause that I, would, I could say and that I have seen, but people would just think that I'm just talking out my ass. Society doesn't even have a clue of the amount of violence that can happen and that how nobody even blinks an eye. The cops will stand there and watch because they don't want to jeopardize themselves. But that dude, after he stabbed him probably seven or eight times, slamming a, you know, an 11-inch, 12-inch piece of piece into this dude, everyone was dead quiet. You could hear a pin drop. He screamed up at the tower where they had multiple cops screaming at him with a gunner, get out, get out. He screamed, get this piece of shit off my yard and threw down the piece and fucking walked away and went and sat down at the tables. They didn't even come into the yard for about 45 minutes after that and get that dude. He was laying there dead on the basketball court and there was cops all around the perimeter of the yard, but they just wouldn't come in. And nobody wants to be the first one to lock it up or to lay down and give up. So every race is doing a standoff, you know, everyone's grouped up and, you know, when something like that happens, you know, it's no one saw nothing. It wasn't your business. And you just, that shit happens every day or on another institution, somebody was supposed to put in some work. They were coming out the chow hall <clears throat> through one vicious right hook, killed dude. He hit him from behind in the jaw. Dude was dead before he hit the ground. He caught seven more years. They only gave him seven years for catching a body in Yuma County. Is that not insane or what? He yeah. already had 15 years, killed somebody in prison, and they only gave him seven more. Just to back that up a little bit then, Arizona, the violence, especially in the jails. I mean, Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail was classified as the jail with the highest rate of death out of all the jails and prisons in America. Nat Geo Channel, they researched it around the time I was there over a five-year period. 62 people died, and some of those people were murdered by the guards. And I've oh. got videos of guards murdering mentally ill prisoners on my channel. In fact, I'll put them in the description box below this so people can see how real it is. I've also got a video of, I think his name is Peter Van Winkle, an AB dude who killed a guy in the maximum security Madison Street jail where I was for a year, he killed a guy in there because the guy had refused to beat someone up for the gang. And he's not shanking this guy, it's not a quick kill. He is, for 10 minutes, he's smashing this guy's head over and over and over into the concrete. 10 minutes later, guy's not dead yet, so he's just stomping on the back of his head, stomping on the back of his neck, and blood's just going everywhere. 
20, and this is the guards screaming, they're supposed to be watching this and stopping any trouble. The guards don't do shit. So 20 minutes it was before the guards responded. And um, by then, he's already, the guy's already dead. He's grabbed the corpse, brought it out right in front of the camera like he's trying to show it off. He tries to throw it off a balcony, it gets stuck on the railing, and he starts kicking it over and over and over again. And only then did the guards come in and respond. This is how much control the gangs have got over the prisoners versus the guards. But now we've talked extensively about the gang side of it. Let's go over to the guards side of it. So you, you went in, uh, you learn all these rules, but then the guards rules conflict the gang rules sometimes. How did you navigate through that system of conflicting rules? I mean, you just got to go on a day-by-day -day basis. You got to try to mind your P's and Q's. When you go against the cops, they can plant something on you. They can do, you know, they can ruin your life real quick. If they make a couple reports and they have a sergeant or someone that supports it, you're burnt. If someone, and what I think these cops, is almost every single staff assault, I've said this multiple times on my channel, check it out, J Rock Talks on YouTube, but um, multiple times, individuals, a cop will call someone a bitch, or, you know, take, take your training, you little punk, quit crying, don't be a little bitch. They say that, and now that inmate is either going to retaliate and assault that officer, and he might catch two and a half years now if it's serious and he catches a case over it, or his celly or every other individual, whatever race he is, they're going to stomp him out and maybe kill him because he didn't stick up for himself. These cops put themselves in that position. They need to teach them better. They literally, because they're, you know, cops get hired and they're gone like that. The return rate, you know, there's always new Department of Corrections, you know, and same thing. The difference between a DO and a CO is a detention officer is in county, a CO is in prison. DOs in county jail, we call them door openers because that's all they do. They're extremely disrespectful, and you just got to, exactly like you said, I mean, the guards, you don't want them against you, but at the end of the day, they know it's a cat and mouse game. They're our enemy, and we're our enemy. They treat us like that. For instance, say you assault an officer, five officers are getting you back. You know what I'm saying? Like, you give it to them, they're giving it back. You stab one of them, they're breaking everything you have, and they're breaking ribs. Like, you, you burn a cop, you throw something hot, hot water on an officer in lockdown, they're smashing your TV, they're pouring water in your fan, and your TV, everything is ruined. I mean, you don't want to go against them. It's a huge revolving door, and you're going to lose that battle. You just got to mind your P's and Q's. Don't talk to an officer alone. Always make sure you have someone with you. You don't want to go up and ask a cop for a towel and then have some dude say, hey, you know, so-and-so went up there and just told the cop, you know, that I have heroin or whatever. You always want to have a reputable individual with you. If you're going to go be talking to a cop, never step into a cell or some bullshit with a sergeant or a lieutenant and chop it up alone. Always have an individual with you. On lower custody yards, they push this super heavy. At no point in time, even when they're doing mail call, you can't even go up to the cop by yourself and grab your mail because they don't want someone to slip the cop a note and say, help, you know, so-and-so has a cell phone and they're going to kill me, you know? So another thing that we didn't really kind of go over is um, the mailman. So every race has a mailman 
And what that individual does is every day, anybody that writes a letter, they stack it up at that individual's desk or at his house or at his door. And he goes through, looks at it. You're obviously your envelope is sealed, but he looks at it. He looks at the kites and the different health requests. We call them H and R's. And he looks to make sure there's nothing sketchy. And then he turns that stuff in. And why we do that, as I said previously, is people will drop kites. They'll tell their celly, oh, yeah, my back hurts. I'm going to get an H&R. Uh, I got to go to medical. And then they write on there, my celly has a knife. I'm scared for my life. And he's writing a girl on Facebook, and she's going to bring in heroin next weekend. Get me out of here. Help. And then they'll turn that in like, hey, CEO, I got to go to medical. And they try to act all slick. And, you know, you got to think these people are master manipulators. They've been manipulating and doing this since they were little kids. Everyone that watches our show or my show for sure, they just assume that everybody that catches a case is educated and literate or had a life like they did. People just don't grasp that some of these individuals grew up with drug addict mothers and 10 brothers and they were you know, bouncing from house to house. They had no structure. They had no male role model. They didn't learn to read or write. And the only thing they know how to do is steal and extort. That's how they've fed themselves. So what's going to be different when they go to prison? In my opinion, you know, thieving is not a hustle. Nobody respects a thief. That shit doesn't fly in Arizona. Booty bandits, as you know, we don't, we don't let that shit fly. We stick up for our own. You know, no one's going to extort our people. No white boy is going to go to store in Arizona and have another race push up on him and take his shit. Or would we let another white boy take his stuff? Now, if he owes a debt, yeah, he's going to come correct and he's going to pay. But we're not just going to let people extort our people. We're trying to build them up and give them character and teach them something they didn't know. I became a man, and I can say that. I was ignorant. I didn't respect anybody. I didn't give a fuck who I affected. I only thought about me, me, me always. My money, my this, my truck. You hit my truck. Like I was always so, so quick to explode. And I've acknowledged that about myself. I try working on it every day. You know, I understand that at any given time because of my tattoos and because of my past, if at something simple, um, like for instance, on Black Friday, um, at Black Friday recently, the big shopping event, I don't know if you guys celebrate that in England, but everyone was at Best Buy. We were with one of my buddies. My, we had just had the baby. I was trying to get my lady a push present. She wanted one of those smart watches. And a couple of individuals were out there running their mouth. At first, they offered $20 to try to cut in line, and then they offered a $50 bill, and some guy took the money and just let them cut in front of us. And a bigger black gentleman next to me, big boy, told him, nah, homeboy. And, you know, we started kind of arguing, and the chick with that group ended up basing, and I straight elbowed this dude. And long story short, I didn't get in trouble, thank God. But the woman that got hit most of the mace, a little Mexican lady, I talk to her all the time. She's super funny. She's giving me that video of me catching that dude with an elbow. And I'm posting that on my page and it got mixed reactions. Some people were like, why would you post that? But all the other people that were saying, oh, he made that up or where's the footage? All those people that were saying it didn't happen. I just want to throw it up and say, take that. But yeah, that was some bullshit. And I try to not, you know, I under, I try to avoid those situations at all costs. But in that situation, I was standing next to my friend with his pregnant lady it was it was going to escalate no matter what. I just happened to throw that strike because I was trying to get off first. They were either going to swing on one of us or the dude next to me was going to swing. So just like you know, I was taught, 
my dad always told me as a kid, you know, if you get that first punch off, you got like an 81% chance of winning. So I've always tried to take flight first. All right. On the subject of the guards then, did you see <laughs> any guards attack prisoners or any prisoners attack guards? Oh, I've been stomped out by cops multiple times. I've seen them stomp out other inmates multiple times. You And every time the report will say, so-and-so inmate did this. We use the least amount of force necessary. And every single ticket, they're stomping people with boots. They have those big bear maces. They're pistol whipping people with that OC spray, just pushing it in people's ear or their nose. Anything they can get to inflict pain or to get you, they want to. And believe me, they hold grudges. If you got their homeboy or if you, you know, you disrespected them in the chow hall, they're going to remember. They're going to search your shit. They're going to step on your pillow with their nasty ass boots. They're going to have their canine dog jump all over your bed. And this is another perfect example. A canine officer came in. They were doing searches with the wands trying to find metal. He kept running the dogs on the bed. One of the German shepherds hiked his leg and peed on an individual's bed. The individual freaked out. When they were trying to lock us back down, he seen the urine all over his shit. He started freaking out, telling the sergeant, yo, you guys need to come correct. I'm not fucking sleeping on that, blah, blah, blah. You're not going to make me wash all my shit in this house. I want a new mattress and I want new shit now. I got that coming. And they were like, we're busy. Go lock down. We'll take care. And he's like, you ain't going to talk to me like that. Like, I got that coming. I want clean linens like everyone else. I want to lay down. You guys are going to be gone searching all day. And he said, I said, go sit your ass down and lock down. And boom, it was on. Homeboy took flight on him right there. And, you know, with the Southsiders, when, when when you take flight, they're going. So if a Mexican gets into it with a cop, they're all going. And it's on and cracking. And the white boys run with the cops. And as you know, it followed suit. And uh, it was no joke. We were locked down for almost six months. And you bring in the trays in every single day. No phone calls. If you didn't have a cell phone in your cell before that shit happened, you were burnt. If you didn't have commissary... When that happened, you were burnt because we couldn't order commissary that whole time. And the trays, when you're not going out of your cell and going to the chow hall in a foreyard, when they're making those little lunch sacks, you're not getting as much food. It damn sure ain't going to be hot. So, you're, you know, everybody has to pay. Like I said, that individual could have bit the bullet and thrown that dirty linens out and just kicked it. But instead, he did what he did and everybody had to pay the price for that one individual. And to be honest, I'm almost 95% sure that that dude got dealt with for that and ended up going out the back. He ended up PCing up because of that whole issue right there. I heard why I'm not confirming that is because that was hearsay from somebody in the vent at the, in the hole that I did not know. So I can only take that, you know, for face value because I don't know that individual or his word. So on a lot of the yards... Drugs are getting brought in by visitation. But what I learned is a guard just takes one guard to be flooded like a whole building with drugs. Was that the case that you experienced? Oh, yeah. Multiple times. We had a cop in lockdown bringing us tobacco. I'm obviously not going to put her on blast, but that was a blessing. In lockdown, you know, on, on a cigarette is very expensive. 
I would be lying if I said a specific price right now because things have probably fluctuated. I've been out since December 2014, so I'm not hip and I can't even remember off the top of my head. But we were making a killing. That was a total blessing. And um, yeah, it was simple, man. You know, so many cops, they're making 18 hours. They're, you know, they're strained. They got kids. They got holidays coming up. You can see when they're stressed out. So when you see someone mopey for a couple of days or, you know, you try to be friendly, someone will pull up on that cop, you know, master manipulator and be like, hey, you know, you good? What's going on out there? Oh, your man treating you like shit? Next thing you know, you know, she thinks you got good looking eyes. Next thing you know, she's complimenting your tattoos or damn, you're putting, you're getting big. Your chest is getting big. You weren't that big a couple months ago. Now she's eyeing you. And then you drop the seed like, hey, girl, will you bring me a lighter? Fucking uh, I can't smoke in my room, something little, or hey, bring me a pen so that I can do my drawings, just bring me a pen, and once they bring that first thing, it's a wrap, bring me toenail clippers, girl, come on, it's toenail clippers, what could I do, lace me up, beautiful, come on, boom, she brings that in, next thing you know, tell her, hey, can you bring this, my buddy's going to give you a balloon full of some really quality tobacco, just bring it in, just like you did last time with the pen, everything will be good, no, my job, no, 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 girl, it's tobacco, just say it's yours. If they catch you, it's legal. It's not drugs. Okay. So, boom, she's bringing it in. After she does that two or three times, then, you know, you're having your homeboy put, you know, a half ounce of heroin in the center of the tobacco, and she's bringing that in. And then it just keeps going. Next thing you know, she's going to meet with your mom on the street, and she's going to get a quarter kilo and going to fucking drop it off to another cop that she works with that works at a different wing. And next thing you know, you got three or four cops on the team. And you're making, you know, you can offer to pay them $1,500, $2,000 per drop because on something on the streets that costs $700 for an ounce, you're going to make six grand on in the joint. 0. 0.5, 0. 0.5 of heroin, a half gram on a scale on the streets sells for $150 in Arizona. They call that a prison gram. I've got a hypothetical question for you. Let's say you're inside. And someone you grew up with is a prison guard, and you're on. You were on friendly terms with that person on the streets. I had would, that. Would, had would that you experience. would you let the fellas know, or would you keep that secret? No, I let them know off top. I was in lockdown. I came out of my cell. I had a fresh tattoo. One of the individuals seen it. A cop. He ended up calling an all call. They locked us back down. They locked my cellie in the shower. They locked me in my cell. And when the cops came in. One of the individuals that was holding the video camera recording my eek and like trying to question us, I knew him. I fought with him as a kid. I smoked weed with him. I fucked a girl in his bed in ninth grade. I used to ride on the back of his dirt bike and smash mailboxes. And he was sitting there right there in front of me. And I'm just like, and he looked at me all scared, like, you know, like trying to like thinking I was going to tell on him. If I would have said, oh, what's up, so-and-so, they would have moved him off that institution or they would have moved me. So I didn't say anything. When they moved me back in with my celly and they put my celly back in the cell with me, I immediately told him, I know, homeboy. Remember that story I told you I got my lip busted and I got jumped at Skyline? That's who gave me a ride to my grandma's. That's who took me. And he's like, what? So the next time that individual was walking, I asked him, hey, let me get that pen. Let me get that red pen. What's up? No, I don't want to get fired. I just got out of the army. He was on some scary shit. That was at SMU 1. And then I ended up getting moved to SMU2, and same thing. I seen my boy Gonzo's brother, and he, he walked up. He was way bigger. When I seen him, he was probably, you know, 50 pounds bigger than the last time I seen him. 
But he came out and he was passing out traps and trays. And when he was like slipping the tray, I was looking, you know, I, I immediately knew who it was. He was a grade younger than me growing up in high school. I used to kick it with his brother Gonzo. So I'm looking at him and he's not picking it up and he's still not picking it up. And he's still not picking it up. And I said, Hey, CO, uh, and I moved my light cover. I said, can you tell Gonzo? I said, what up? And as soon as I did that, I mean, he literally clicked right there. And like the other individual was right there stacking trays and lids. So, you know, they're, they're trying to hide it that they know someone or whatever, but he was cool compared to the other one. He came back, he was shooting the shit. Like what happened, bro? Like, man, dog, you were so good. Like what? What happened with that? How is so-and-so? How is she, you know? But, you know, multiple times I had that. And, yeah, I told the fellas off top. I was trying to get them to, you know, lace me up or, you know, send a message or anything, pass something for me. But both of them were, you know, trying to be professional, and I respect that. They both had kids. You know, would I kick it with them on the street? No. You know, but it is what it is. I respect them. I understand they're trying to pay their bills. I'm glad that, you know, they're on that side instead of me seeing them in orange. So, you know, what a... What advice would you give to a young person going in who asked you how they should deal with the gods? Be respectful. Act like an adult. Treat them how you would want to be treated if you were just going to work every day. Um, I would definitely say if you're going, you know, stay away from debt, stay away from dope, and stay away from any fucking form of relationship or someone trying to protect you someone that's trying to act like your friend and then want you to start giving them money to make sure that you know i'll back you up no matter what if they jump you you know just pay me this that dude's trying to get up on you next thing you know he's gonna be trying to get in your butt cheeks just do you stand up for what you believe in you gotta know when to hold them and you gotta know when to fold them straight up not every battle you're gonna win you gotta pick and choose you know it's not it, you just got to be smart. You guys know the difference between right and wrong. The same things that apply on the street, right and wrong is in there. Don't tell another man. Mind your own business. Be respectful. Be honorable. And you could go your whole bid and be perfectly fine. It's the people that are gambling and that are trying to mingle and politic and selling dope and trying to do this and trying to, you know, it's always these youngsters come. This is how a lot of youngsters get ruined. They're sitting at the table. And a couple older old timers will be talking and say, oh, yeah, so-and-so blue right there. That fool needs to get smashed. Fucking he did this over on this yard. And then you got a little fish, new booty right here. Like, yeah, man, fuck that old timer. Someone needs to put a piece of steel in that motherfucker. He needs to know what time it is. Yeah, he should. somebody needs to get that fool. And then next thing you know, one of those old timers is like, oh, yeah, youngster, go handle that then, tough guy. Here's a piece. You know what I'm saying? You want to fucking preach all that high power stuff? Go handle it. So then that youngster goes and does it trying to prove himself to somebody that is never going to mean anything in his life later on. And he goes and whacks this fool and catches a body and then boom, you go from 17 years old catching a DUI to doing 28 years. You know what I'm saying? Shit's not a joke. Excuse me. Hold on for a moment. Chloe, hush. I apologize about that. My female is tripping the dog. Did, um, Did you get along with all your sellies? Everyone except one. All my sellies were young. I was super thankful. I didn't want to get some old grumpy ass skinhead that was trying to mold me and get me to do his shit or his time. I was always blessed with someone that was really close to my age and we always saw eye to eye. I mean, I could get along with anybody, brother. When I was in Alhambra and we were sailed with fucking 18 people, four black, four Mexican, two Chinese, 
it's nothing to me. When I was in the warehouse, you know, chilling, playing cards, right? I don't see color unless it's green, brother. I'm trying to feed my family. It was the same way in the joint. People think that we can't talk to the blacks or something in there. We just, it's more of a, more of a, not of a money thing or let them, they sit at their tables. We have ours and we normally don't do that much business because there's other business that could be done. We're not trying to put money in their pocket per se, but I fuck with them heavy. What's up, cuzzo? All right, blood. Like, they, they fuck with me tough. What's up, white boy, you little cracker-ass white boy? I seen you get dunked on earlier. I'll dunk all over you, white boy. I'm like, shit, I'll roll you up, you nappy-headed fuck. And they'll fucking, you know, we shoot the shit back and forth, brother. They'll be calling me a pasty, pink-headed baby dick bastard. And, you know, I'll, back and forth, brother. And we would shoot the shit, you know what I'm saying? And I was cool with those boys. The homie Papa Doc, KO, OG Boney Low, Westside, all the big, you know, LCM, Westside City. If you're real and you're a real motherfucker and you know a little bit of lingo, fools are going to respect you no matter where you go, where you touch down. And people have that thing that, well, how are you cool with them? And then a riot kicks off. Look, there is everybody in every race. Uh, there's people that you're going to like and people that you don't going to like. If a riot kicks off, am I going to go target the dudes that I joke with and I think are cool and someone that you know I think is a solid individual? I mean, if I was forced to and I was going to be killed over it, absolutely, I'm going to defend myself. But if I could choose to get the guy that's loud, screaming all the time in the pod, that's dirty as fuck that I don't like, yeah, I'm going to smash that motherfucker, not the dudes that I had a little bit of respect for. You know, it's color is nothing. When you're in prison, the lines are drawn. If you don't like that and you don't want to live that life, don't do crime. Don't do the time. We've talked about the dark side, but the things that prisoners look forward to are like visits and mail. Did you have family and friends visiting you? Thankfully, 100%. I got I got a finger my lady in visitation, brother. Straight up. Yeah, but uh, excuse me, but uh, yeah, I got visits. I got a lot of love. Initially, when I was on Tucson, my family was in the Chandler, Tempe area, so it was easy for them to come to Tucson. And then when I was in Florence, it was easier, you know, close for my family to come. It was about a 25-minute drive. So that was a blessing. But my first bid, I had a girl on the team coming to see me. You know, like I said, I just did what I did. I went back to the yard and was, smell that. Everyone was laughing. Everyone was like, hell yeah. You know, but I, I was blessed, brother. I really was. I say this all the time. If it weren't for the individuals that just happened to be where I showed up, my time probably would have been so different. When I showed up, when I was in Kingman, I moved from Tucson all the way to Kingman. They did a mass move, 300 people, because there was a riot out there against the whites and the blacks. So they rotated 300 versus 300. <clears throat> right when I pull up, my uncle's best friend, Garner, immediately sees my name on my tag, pulls me up, asks me if I have family in Phoenix. I answer a couple questions. He's like, come over here. Boom. He's like, what's up, fool? Boom. Introduces me to another dude. They all grew up with my uncle. They knew my uncle Butterbean. You know, right then, I got a TV before my property even came. I got a couple pouches of tobacco. I got about eight honey buns. He asked me if I tattoo. I said, yeah. He gave me a motor and ink. Like, I was blessed. If it weren't for those individuals blessing me, who knows what my time would have been like. When I ended up going to lockdown, when I smashed that chomo in the foreyard and ended up going to max custody... I ended up getting an amazing celly. I was super bummed out thinking that I wasn't going to be able to get tatted. And I got all pretty much this whole entire arm, pretty much the whole inside, um, pretty much my whole entire chest, all finished. I mean, 
I was blessed that he was able to tattoo. We had so much in common. We knew girls and individuals from the streets. There was only one person that I was settled with that I bumped heads with tough in prison. And for the first couple months, I fed him. We got along. He was kind of cool. But, you know, he started asking if he could read my letters because he didn't get letters. And I had, I had no problem with that at first. You know, I would get a letter from my grandma or from my lady and I would read it to him and he would enjoy it. You know, he didn't get to hear from nobody from the streets. So he would literally like pretend it was for him when they were saying, I love you and shit, you know, psychologically trying to keep himself going or whatever. Well, I was feeding, taking care of this dude for months, as I said. And, you know, as we started butting heads, it got to the point, you know, you stay on your side. I'm going to stay on my side. He was solid and so was I. So I wasn't going to smash this dude and send him packing and ruin his career because he was solid. We just didn't see eye to eye. He wasn't a PC case. He wasn't all bad. You're just not going to mingle with everybody. You know what I'm saying? You're not, there's not, every single person in life is not going to be your best friend. And some people just got to, you know, realize that. And that's how me and that individual were. We didn't work out together. We didn't program together. We didn't do German together. I would study German with somebody in the vent. He would study with somebody else on the pod at his own time. I would do burpees and then bird bath and then clean the floor. And then he would do it like an hour after me and redo everything. Like we were on complete opposite schedules. So a lot of people don't realize, but in lockdown, especially when you're schooled, you know, old school, you have to have one up, one down all the time. You can't have two people sleeping at the same time. You always have to have one ear on the tier. Somebody has to always be paying attention. If they're going to be doing a mass search or if the dogs are coming, we need to know what's going on. And when you got, you know, when you're doing politics and you're political and you're sporting specific ink, you got to stand up and be a reputable individual and you got to be on point and representing. If somebody walks by and it's, you know, one of your brothers walks by and they see you guys both in there snuggled up under your blanket, you guys are going to get smashed. And if they can't get at you, they're going to have you guys fight each other. And if you don't, then you guys will both be all bad and you'll be on the list and be pieces of shit. It's a doggy dog world in there. Everybody is sharks. And a lot of people don't know, but sharks will eat other sharks. So. So you ended up in a fight with this guy, the cellmate. Yeah, multiple times. Multiple times. Yeah, I beat it. So we were on the rec pen. So how we got moved in together is I got moved in with a dude named Levi Moses. So the individual that was tattooing me, I just told you, I was settled with him. He ended up getting reclassed from max custody to going down to a four yard, which is a little bit lower max. So I was alone. They immediately moved me with an individual named Levi Moses. He shot his mom in the back of the head with an AR-15 because God told him to. He was all bad. He's a sight case. He has He's schizophrenic and shit. And they moved me in the cell with him. He had 18 years. I had 18 months at that time. And I smashed him. I ended up getting an assault ticket. When they came and they did the search and they seen my birthmark on my throat, they thought that he had choked me. And they ended up getting dropped from an assault to disorderly conduct because they thought it was mutual combat. I ended up getting my neck, Sally, the one that I told you that I fought. Everything was all good for the first little bit. When we were out at the rec plan, we were playing handball. And one of the homeboys yells over, AJ Rat. I'm like, yeah. He's like, hey, is your Sally so-and-so? I said, yeah. He's like, hey, tune that fool up, but give him a hug afterwards. He's not all bad. But, you know, my Sally's looking at me. He hears what the fuck homeboy just said. He knows that tune him up means get his ass beat. So he's looking at me like, fool, 
we're selling stuff. We're living together. Fuck. I'm like, brother, I'm not getting in a wreck over you. Just take your glasses off. We'll get it up and we'll fucking shake hands. Dog, it's nothing. He's like, no, fool. No, fool. Fucking brother. I'm like, fool, take off your glasses, brother. We're going to get it up. I'm not going to fuck you off. Just come on. And then homeboy yelled over, hey, West Side. That's the homeboy that's next to us in the pod, you know, in the rec pen next to me. And he tells him, hey, look at the bottom of the rack and make sure those white boys get it up. So what he was telling Westside was to get on the ground and look under the vent to make sure that I really tuned up homeboy and that we weren't just slap boxing around on some bullshit. So once he said that, I was already going to beat dude up. I had been wanting to slip whip his ass anyways. But with that, it was a win-win for me, you know? I told him one more time, take off your glasses, homeboy, or else. He's like, fool, ding, ding, ding. I lit his ass up, man. He tried to ball up. It was like, oh, and I just bombed on him a couple of times, good ones in the body. And, you know, West Side was like, all right, all right. Because normally you're not supposed to hit somebody when they're on the ground. Me and that dude, like I said, weren't the best of pens. So uh, I did what I had to do. But other than that, excuse me, one moment. Yeah, you're okay. Go for it. So if you're enjoying this video, please subscribe to the channel. Subscription logo, bottom right-hand corner. If you've got any questions or comments for J-Rock Putman below and also please subscribe over to his channel. His link is going to be in the description box below this video and he was just on a story right now getting in fights with his celly. Yep. So that was the first time we had fought. After we had fought, I apologize. I had to blow my nose right now. Sounding all monotone for you guys. But uh, after we fought, I when we went into the house... You know, we did have to live together. My mom raised a solid human being, so I made up a bowl of beans and soup, and I tried to offer him some. He was a little bit mad, so I just left it there, whatever. I ended up writing a letter. I was writing my uncle up there, and while I was writing my uncle, I wrote him about four or five, you know, lines, and I, you know, grabbed it, and I hung it down there and, like, dangled it by his bunk. And, you know, I was on top at that time. I always liked being on top. When I always tell stories, people assume, like, if you're on top, that you're the weaker individual. Even when the bottom bunk or that fool would move out, I liked staying up top. I had more space up there. I could hang my curtain. I liked it way more. Anyways, he grabbed that little paper from me. And pretty much I told him, look, little brother, I know you don't fuck with me. I don't fuck with you. We both got to coexist. We're both, we're both solid. We're both white. We both got a family out there. Like, let's just make this shit happen or we're going to fucking kill each other. I don't want to have to be sleeping with one eye open. Neither do you. Like, are we good or are we going to get this shit up? And he said, you know, he read it and he peeked up at me and he said, we're good, brother. So, you know, we were good. So about a week went by. Everything kind of went back to normal. Everything was fine. We were about ready to work out. And I had asked him, hey, did you shave? We both had a Norelco shaver, you know, so you can shave. In Max custody, they steal, the inmates steal the Barbasol, which you clean the clippers with. So they don't have the real Barbasol. It's just watered down and it doesn't work. So when there's multiple individuals in the cluster that have HIV and we know they have HIV, they made a rule that no white boys and no Mexicans can use the state clippers because they had those STDs on it. So unless you have $80 to purchase, you know, an electric shaver, a little Norelco, you're burnt. So... You know, we were cutting each other's hair, and hygiene in the cell is a major issue. When you brush your teeth and you have your mouth open and somebody's sleeping, it's loud. Not only that, but spit is going all over your sink and your toilet. 
you got to close your mouth. These are just little things you learn in lockdown that he would not do. And they would drive me crazy. He would spit in the sink where we cook. And that was the final straw. We were about ready to work out. Like I was saying, I seen him spit in the sink and made me mad. We cook right there. You know what I'm saying? Our hands are right there all day. We're cooking our food and chopping up our stuff. And you're just going to spit all over my shit. Nah. So I made a comment about it. He felt some type of way and wanted to like try to act like he, you know, he jumped up like, what's up, motherfucker? Like trying to intimidate me or something. And we got it up, you know? When you start fighting and two cellies start fighting, the whole pod gets dead silent because everyone's trying to hear what's going on. But we got into it. You know, he tried shooting for my legs. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I was bigger than him. I'm 6'1". I'm like 170 to 180 out here. But then, you know, I was probably like 198. I got released at 206 in 2014. He was probably like 155, and he's like 5'8". So, yes, there was a size advantage, so I'll give him that. He did try a couple times after I beat him up the first time. So, I mean, he does have a little bit of heart. I'm not going to put him on blast and say his name, but we were oil and water, and that's a hostile environment. You always got to keep your back, no matter who your celly is. Even if you guys get along, you don't know if that dude is – gonna wake up one night and try to strangle you or you know in lockdown there was a dude that got tied to the toilet they tied his hands around the toilet so that he was stuck like this and he tied him up with an extension cord and was spanking him and whipping him with another piece of that extension cord and raping that guy and you can hear that guy scream from three clusters away begging for his life and the cops didn't intervene on that for almost an hour and a half while someone just was getting tortured on the cluster screaming bloody murder and it's insane but when a human screams seriously your voice goes like that like a lot of people don't know and i didn't even acknowledge that until i was in these situations but when someone's screaming bloody murder and they're getting hurt and they are scared they have like three good screams and their voice is gone like i've heard people like see ya and then you hear silence and it's not, they didn't die. Their voice just gave out. And then they probably got winded or they're getting choked or something. But that individual that got raped like that, that was two black cellies. And the guy literally beat the dude up in his sleep and knocked him out. And I guess while he was knocked out, he tied his hands around the steel toilet. So the guy couldn't get up. His hands were like, you know, and his face was like pushed up against like where your, you know, ass would be to shit. And the guy whipped him with the remaining parts of that cord over and over and over and was just you know sodomizing him and you know people think this shit is a joke but to be experiencing this be experiencing this all the time for 24 months not seeing the sunlight once not one time in 24 months 23 months excuse me and then getting released and hey mom hey babe you know it's overwhelming smelling women's you know or for even worse for the people that got go you'll get on a bus with 60 people they don't know People stepping on their space, in their shit, disrespectful. You know, it's it's so messed up in there, man. It's great that we're bringing light to this because society, we need to make changes. These individuals need to be taught tasks, how to read and write, how to do a trade, how to write checks, how to balance a checkbook, how to operate a smartphone. Some of these individuals were locked up when they were still pagers. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of these individuals have never seen a, a, a Razor phone. They've never seen an Uber. They've never seen a flat screen TV. 
when they brought the flat screen TVs and they took all the old TVs, all the Magna boxes and all those old school clear TVs we used to have, and they started the clear little new style, some of the lifers were blown away. I was looking at them, look at these screens like they were spaceships. And I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, they're like, look, what, what is this port? I'm like, that's a USB port. What is that? I'm like, oh my God. Like people don't grasp these things that time moves on and people forget about those people out of sight, out of mind. You've done really good uh, today, J-Rock. You've really confirmed a lot of the things I've been saying about the Arizona experience. I've just got one final question before we wrap this up. If you could just tell the viewers, how did you make a tattoo gun and how did you get ink? I can do that right now. I'm going to be making a video on that shortly, but I'll show you right here. So with these regular file folders right here, you take two regular file folders and you take grease and you take grease like this and you open up the grease and you take out a little bit of the tip and you use it. Um, you can use like a different type of rope out of the net bag or you can use um, tissue, but you wrap it up in the wax and you're making a wick and then you light the wax. And when you have your little homemade candle up under your bunk burning, it's going to be putting off a lot of black soot. And you're going to set up the two file folders like a TP above it, and you want to capture all that soot. And it'll burn. It'll smell a little bit. The cops won't smell it. And you'll, as you collect the soot, you'll keep collecting soot, and you scrape it off the file folder until you get about enough to fill up about this much of a shampoo bottle. And then you add your own mixture. Everybody's is different. I made all of this ink. All of this ink I made. And it's just as black as my street ink. This was the street. This was a single needle. This was a 13 mag. This is street ink. And I made this. And you can see this, the Virgin Mary is street ink. And this ink right next to it, the shading I made. So, I mean, it's dark. It might poison you. I don't know. It never affected me. After you collect the soot and you have it in your bottle, some people add lotion. Some people only add shampoo or conditioner. I put a little bit of water, a little bit of vitamin E oil, and a little bit of conditioner, and you shake it up. You get a rock from the yard or something small, some type of small metal ball, and you boil it so that it doesn't have any contaminants in it, and you put it in your shampoo bottle, and you just shake that stuff up for about 24 hours. Just keep whipping it up. When your forearms get to where you can't shake that thing anymore, have your celly shake it, continue that, and that next day it'll be ready. With the tattoo motors, you can use anything from a, a Norelco face shaver, anything that has a rotary motor or a Walkman. You bust out the Walkman and all you take is the pancake motor. It's about this big and you'll know exactly what I'm talking. It looks like a pancake with a pin in the center. And you take that, you take a regular pen tube, and you cut open the pen tube and you take out the ink and the part of the pen that has the ink in it, that's going to be your barrel. That's going to keep your needle straight so it's not bouncing around in that big pen. So you're going to heat up the ink and blow all the ink out of your ink pen and you're going to melt that little ink liner in there just a little bit thinner and stretch it so that it's kind of hollows out that hole from being like a wider gauge to a little smaller. You feed your needle through there. You get your needle so... This spring, any spring, any spring that you would see in a lighter, 
any type of spring, you grab the spring like this and you stretch it out. Well, obviously, if you just pull it, it's not going to be able to, you know, stretch out completely straight if I were to keep it like that. So you grab it on one end with toenail clippers, clean new, new toenail clippers, and you hold it on another end and you pop the socket with two pieces of lead. You pop and you heat it up just enough to where it'll straighten it out. If you heat it too much, it'll break and it'll be too brittle. This little spring I could make three tattoo needles out of. The guns are really small. You make them small normally because it's getting hid somewhere inside of somebody. So it's got to be tiny. They make it. They feed it through. Most people either sharpen it on the concrete or like in a groove on the wall or in the grout. Some people get, you know, some really tiny pieces of sandpaper from maintenance. I was never that blessed, unfortunately. And you just have to keep resharpening the needle. When you can poke the needle like this into your hand, into the tough part of your skin right here on your hand, if you can touch that needle and the needle will dangle and it'll kind of stick into you like that and it'll just like boop and it'll just kind of dangle, that's when you know it's sharp enough. You can begin tattooing. You still, there you go. Okay. There we go. That's how we tattoo. Um, there's multiple other ways. Everyone has their own little cup of tea and how they do it. How we attach the little ink. So what makes the rotary spin is we use the little ink cartridge and we melt the end of it and you poke it on that pin. So when the motor spins, it's pushing that needle up and down and that's how you're getting your motion. There are individuals like for this nose on this girl right here blowing smoke on her nose. My celly for about three days made two of these springs into a feathered like stacked little needle like this and he melted plastic and braided it and he made like a little prison style shader and he just put a little bit of that ink in water and he just whipped up that gray wash and people have always been blown away about how smooth that's looked. If you look at right here or some of the other ink like right here, it looks like pepper is spilled on my arm. That style of shading is called pepper shading. That's because it's a single needle. When someone is more skilled like this person, you know, it doesn't look like that. But I just want to say, bro, I really appreciate you having me on here. You didn't have to do that, bro. I really support you. I like what you're doing. I watch your little show on there in England. Someone sent me a link, and I really appreciate you, brother, for real. Well, one final thing. You said tattooing was your hustle. What, what were the most popular tattoos? What were people requesting you to tattoo? White boys, skulls, cell structure, and fat asses, guns, you know, people with bandanas or ski masks. The prison special, that's what we call it. Everybody wants to get, you know, everyone wants to get their neighborhood, their last name, and then, you know, obviously political ink. Not anybody can just put, you know, white pride on somebody. Not anybody can tattoo a swastika on anybody. Um, obviously, those tattoos are earned. I wanted to say real quick for all the England viewers and for all the English viewers, skinheads and peckerwoods are two totally different things. Skinheads and woods, we both have white skin, but we sit at different tables. They have their politics. We have ours. If there's a riot, yes, we'll be in that group, but that doesn't mean that every peckerwood is going to defend those dudes. A lot of peckerwoods don't represent at all what the skinheads do. So don't think that just because, you know, someone goes to prison that they're a skinhead if they're white because that couldn't be further from the facts. 
Peckerwoods are just regular white boys that are sticking together, riding together so that we don't get extorted and raped. And we're on some Viking shit. We stick up, we work out, and we're extremely militant so that we don't make a target. And that's the facts. People are fascinated in England by the fact that you have to put work in to earn your tattoos. Could you just explain a bit more how that works before we finish? So something simple, I'm going to speak on, you know, our people, and I'm talking about the Pecker Woods. Um, you know, first and foremost would be, you know, an Iron Cross, a simple independent logo. An Iron Cross used to be a lot more serious than it is now. Now there's a lot of kids coming from the streets that have that, so they kind of give them a pass. An Iron Cross just pretty much means that you're a down-ass white boy and that you're about it and you're willing to spill blood. You beat up a couple people, some people owed some money, or you smashed a little chomo, and you smashed them with hands or something. And then you step up to where, you know, you start stabbing people. Back in the day, you had to earn letter by letter to earn your white pride. Letter by letter, whether it was a chomo or, a, you know, you had to earn that shit for real. And then you got to, you know, if it's hollow or if it's filled in, those things used to mean a lot. And back in the day, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that held weight. But... Whether it's black or white in Arizona really doesn't mean too much. What really means something is if it is dripping blood or if it's red. If it's red, that means something different. Um, then you have white boy. A white boy can't just get white boy tatted on him either. They have to be solid. They have to prove themselves. You can't just get those type of political. You can't get a Peckerwood logo like that little Woody Woodpecker. You can't get that. Those are symbolisms, signs that they attach themselves to, that they call their own. And, you know, they represent that to the fullest. There's people that, you know, live, breathe, and are going to die in there. And they're just trying to make it better for youngsters and other young individuals coming up so that they don't get preyed upon like they used to. So if someone comes in with a swastika and they haven't put the work in, what happens? They're going to get killed. If it was a skinhead... All right, so this is the big difference is skinheads earn their swastikas and bolts and their white power and all that shit that they get. They get on the streets by reading Mein Kampf, by reading literature, by, you know, stomping out a drug dealer and getting their laces. You know, they have different politics. It's a revolved around something different. Skinheads have to be a skinhead on the street and come to prison. You can't come to prison and be a wood and boot up. Boot up is the term for becoming a skinhead. We call skinheads boots. You can't become a boot in skinhead. Now, a skinhead can hang up his boots and say, I don't want to be a skinhead anymore. I'm going to be a peckerwood. I'm done with all this racial shit. I want to run with the woods, and I'm a white boy. Are the skinheads going to be happy about that? Absolutely not. But the white boys are a lot deeper, and the woods will smash them if they were to try to, you know, we'll, we will accept a skinhead to come to our side and reform, and then he can earn that shit that he got on the streets. We will give him the benefit of the doubt if he is solid, if he has been on the yard, and if the dude is respected. If he's some willy lump lump, he ain't got nothing coming, and they'll cut it off of him, and that's facts. If some little hipster comes in with a swastika, and he's not a skinhead, and he's just a white boy, very rarely would that individual get the opportunity to put in work and earn that. For him being that ignorant and getting that and not knowing what it represents, they're going to inflict serious pain. And they're probably either A, going to cut his throat or try to cut it off or tattoo something vulgar over it. I mean, there has been some serious, serious 
consequences to pay for getting fraudulent political aid. What's the difference, can you just explain to people, between a solid teardrop under the eye and a clear teardrop under the eye, an outline? So back in the day, if it was solid, it meant you killed somebody. And if it was clear, it meant that you had lost somebody in your organization or your gang. Now you got so many youngsters just getting a teardrop because they think it's cool. Same thing with a spider web. A spider web forever represented how many years that you had done. Now people just get spider webs thrown on. You used to see the individuals that had crazy large webs. You know, like they're lost in time. They're just rotting away. They're in the cobwebs. They're forgotten. And that was why that became a thing. And, you know, just like anything, when things become trendy and society starts attaching themselves to it and starts trying to use it, they want to switch shit up because they want to be different. Why the swastika is used is because it's a feared symbol. Straight up. Not every peckerwood is fucking racist. I say this constantly. And it might blow your mind that someone would have a swastika on them and not be racist, not have a racist bone in their body. But the fact of the matter is, some of these people grew up with having no anything, feeling like they belonged to anything. They didn't have a dad. They didn't know what race they were. They wanted to belong in a gang, but they weren't accepted. They never got accepted by girls. They just never accepted. So now you go to prison. The dude's wild. He's down. He's got heart. He's got camaraderie now. These brothers are accepting him. He's learning about himself and his culture and his people and how he came to this and why he climbed trees and why he was so adventurous as a kid. Because you were a white Aryan man. You're exploring. Like They want to just force kids drugs. Let little kids be little kids. Kids explore. They do crazy shit. And when they find this you know, sense of you know, brotherhood, you know, they, they want to attach themselves to it full force. And then when you have these things, you know, this rank, this rank, this rank, and this rank is the top, of course, these dudes are trying to reach the top. And when that symbolism comes with it, and these dudes are doing, you know, 10, 13 years, they don't see long term. It's hard to see four days ahead in the joint when you're doing 13 years. You feel like everything's over, and you want to be respected, and you want to have, you know, all those things that everybody else has. You want the nice shoes and the nice watch. You want the cops to respect you and not fuck with your house. You want to get extra food when you go in the chow hall. You want nobody to fuck with you. You know, you want 50 people following you and you being a leader. Because at the end of the day, you're going to be living like a king. Why would anybody want to be a peasant when they can fucking earn their way up and live like a king, if that makes sense? I tried to make it easier for someone to grasp that has never been incarcerated and forced to think like that. Everyone that thinks you would do something or I would do this or I would never fucking run with the white boys. I would be by myself. Well, you would die. Your family would get a call and you would be dead or you would be in the infirmary and you would live and they would be removing a broom mop stick out of your ass and you would have no more teeth and your face was probably ruptured in and you're going to look different for the rest of your life for what? You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. Wow. J-Rock, you are so good at telling these stories. I think you should go and, you should go and talk to school kids or young people. It would scare the shit out of them and maybe make them think twice about getting gangsteritis and getting involved in, in the drugs game. I salute you, and I really appreciate your time. You've been so generous with your time today. We're at almost two hours here. So all the people watching this who've enjoyed this video, please support J-Rock. 
go down to that description box below this video, click on his channel, subscribe, check his stuff out, comment, like, share his videos. I'll put, please send me an email with all of your social media links, um, J-Rock, and I shall put all of those down there in the description box. Now, say someone wanted to contact you, what would your preferred platform or preferred way of people getting in contact you be? Um, first and foremost, thank you. You're amazing, brother. I'm really proud of what you're doing. As far as the kids, what you were saying, the, the same juvenile hall that I served twice in when I was young, I had a woman contact me from seeing my videos, and we're trying to get something in the works to where I can speak in front of these kids. I've been off paper now for almost five years, and she thinks that we're going to be able to get the ball rolling. I'm really proud of that. I think that if I would have seen someone that looked like me and kind of talked like me, I think it would have affected me positively when I was young. So I hope that I can have an impact there. I wanted to say real quick to your subscribers, if any of you guys are interested in my dog content, I know how you know Englishmen are about their dogs and I love it. If you guys are interested, check out my YouTube channel, J or Consistent Kennels. That's my dog content. My main channel is J Rock Talks. As he said before, the links will be in the description. You can email me. You can contact me at consistentkennels at gmail.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at consistent underscore kennels. It's consistent with an E. I know I shouldn't have to say that, but I get five comments a day saying, I can't find you. And they're spelling consistent with an A. But use your smartphone, people. I appreciate you guys. Big love. Yeah, Wildman's going to love you. He, he loves dogs, and his favorite job in prison was being a dog handler. So, yeah, I'm going to definitely hook you, hook you up with Wildman as well. So, if you've enjoyed this video, please also subscribe to my channel. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner. It's free to subscribe to our channels. It helps us on YouTube grow and get our stuff um, pushed out by the algorithm. Huge thank you to all the people who have subscribed and all, all the people who've donated on PayPal, Patreon, Just Giving. All those links are in the description box below this video. You've helped the production of the True Crime Podcast fully recorded in studios with sound engineers and, and cameramen and all that stuff. You've helped me set up this home studio. Really appreciate what you've done for the channel and wishing everybody a great 2020 and we're looking forward to bringing more great content to the channel like this, like with J-Rock. So cheers from London. Take care out there.